Let's turn to perseverance and uh, let's pray together. Father, we thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you that you've opened the windows of heaven and revealed yourself to us in creation, in the things that are made, but more especially in the word written and scripturated. We thank you for the fact that, that in times past you spoke by the prophets, but in these last days you have spoken to us through your Son. And we pray tonight as we study together uh, that you would draw near to us, bless us, we pray, hide your word within our hearts. For Jesus' sake we ask it. Amen. Now we're looking together at the Order Salutis, uh, the application of redemption. Uh, Just a quick reminder uh, that we've said that union with Christ is the, uh, well we've used this phrase, architectonic principle like the hub of a wheel uh, in which the spokes of that wheel are the various strands Uh, that the New Testament identifies as calling and regeneration and faith and repentance and um, and justification, um, adoption, sanctification, and tonight perseverance and uh, glorification. Now, when you think about it, If all of these strands of the application of redemption, how how that which Christ has achieved is made effective in the lives of his people, and if if we are to understand that in terms of union with Christ, it it stands to reason that the the culmination of it, the conclusion of it, the, the uh, crescendo of it is the actual bringing of us home to glory, to sanctify us fully after the image of, of Christ. So perseverance, that having begun a good work, he will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ, is Uh, The harmony, as I put it here, the harmony of an idea uh, in in blossom. So that that which that which begins in regeneration is now brought to its fullness and climax in glorification. Uh, The Westminster Confession, chapter seventeen: They whom God Uh, hath accepted in his beloved, effectually called and sanctified by his spirit, can neither totally nor finally fall away from the state of grace, but shall certainly persevere therein to the end and be eternally saved. Of course, this finds expression uh, in uh, one of the five points of Calvinism, uh, the P in tulip, the perseverance of the saints, Uh, that all those for whom Jesus has won salvation, that salvation will be effectually and totally applied. 
Now, we need to make a difference here. We need to distinguish here between perseverance and preservation. And very often when we think of uh, the P in tulip, for example, in, in the five points of Calvinism, uh, what's, what's uh, to the four in, in that fifth point of Calvinism is, is the final preservation of the saints. The emphasis is on the fact that the elect cannot, as the Westminster Confession puts it here, uh, that the elect cannot uh, finally fall away from the state of grace, but shall certainly persevere therein to the end and be eternally saved. It's the idea of being preserved to the end. But there's a difference between perseverance and preservation. Preservation, if you like, is, is the, the way in which we look at this from the point of view of God. God preserves us. Perseverance is the way we look at this from, from our point of view. We persevere. We persevere in faith. We persevere in repentance. We persevere in progressive sanctification. So the preservation, the emphasis falls upon, upon that which God does. And in, and in the perseverance part, the emphasis falls, not entirely, but the emphasis does fall a little upon, upon our involvement in that. And, and I need us to catch something of the, of the difference between perseverance and preservation. Uh, notice uh, the Westminster Confession, nevertheless they may, through the temptations of Satan and of the world, the prevalency of corruption remaining in them and the neglect of the means of their preservation, fall into grievous sins and for a time continue therein, whereby they incur God's displeasure, grieve his Holy Spirit, come to be deprived of some measure of their graces and comforts, of their hearts hardened, and their consciences wounded, hurt and scandalize others and bring temporal judgments upon themselves. That's a, that's a statement, uh, and, and we, we're not going to expound that fully here, but the point of that statement is to say, yes, God preserves all the elect, but that doesn't mean to say that we don't experience difficulty and trial and increase and setback and we can grieve the Holy Spirit and for a season at least incur a period in which we experience something of God's displeasure. Now we want to flesh that out uh, a little bit but those are the sort of doctrinal statements with regard to uh, the perseverance of the saints. Now let's look at some, some Bible texts here some exegetical uh, considerations. John 10, 28, I give them, these are words of Jesus, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Now that's a beautiful text. It's full of comfort. Uh, they are words of our Lord with respect to all of those for whom he has died and and, and gained uh, for those whom he died uh, redemption price and, and so on, uh, that they will, they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Now there are 
Uh, there are interpretations out there, you may have heard them, that whilst it's true that Jesus won't let go of those for whom he, he grasps, it is possible for us to snatch ourselves out of Jesus' hands. And I, I just regard that as kind of cheap exegesis, uh, unworthy of, of any more comment. Uh, The words of Jesus here seem very plain and very clear. Uh, I give them eternal life. Of course, we still need to ask, who are the them in mind here? And how do I know that I am one of them to whom Jesus gives eternal life? And as uh, as a consequence, a, a guarantee that that life is eternal. Uh, And then in uh, Romans 8, uh, we know for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. And of course, if, if, if glorification is true, then perseverance is true. What shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And then these, these series of who questions. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? The who here is, is obviously ultimately Satan. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Another who question, verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword... As it is written, for your sake we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Perhaps that's... uh, the peroration in the New Testament of, uh, of the doctrine of, of the final perseverance of the saints. Nothing can separate us from the love of God which is in Jesus Christ our Lord. Or uh, one more text here, Philippians 1.6, and I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Now you could exegete that and say that that was Paul uh, given... Uh, insight, apostolic insight into something that was only true of the Philippians. Um, th- that would be a strange kind of exegesis, uh, but, but that exegesis has been offered. Uh, but, but it rather reads as though Paul is making a specific statement about the Philippians because it's true of all for whom Jesus died. This is a general doctrine that he's applying here to uh, the Philippians. I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Now let's, uh, let's think of it along theological lines, the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. And, and there are four things 
uh, here to think about. One uh, is the nature of election. If, assuming that you believe in election, if there is such a thing as election, as, as the Bible seems to insist that there is such a thing as election, what does election mean? Well, election means election to what? Election presupposes that the end will be accomplished. If it's possible to fall from grace, then you can say goodbye to the doctrine of election. Election doesn't mean anything if you can actually fall from grace. The doctrine of election presupposes that the end, the, the glorified status of the individual will be achieved. So the, the, very, the very doctrine of election argues for uh, the perseverance of the saints. Or think of the doctrine of justification. What, is, what does the doctrine of justification mean? And what we said was it means bringing into the now... The judgment that will be afforded in the final day. So, so that being justified is the declaration of God right now that we are in a right standing with him. It is, it, is a, it is a verdict now of what will be true in its final form on the day of judgment. So... So the very, the very nature of the doctrine of justification is what, what will be true on the day of judgment is true right now. And, and that, can't, that can't be undone without modifying in some way the, the doctrine, the understanding of what justification is. So, so justification also presupposes the final perseverance of the saints. Or think of the continuing mediation of Jesus. Uh, and we could spend uh, an hour or so now looking at some of the prayers of Jesus. We could look at the high priestly prayer in John chapter 17. That he prays for his own. That he intercedes for us at the right hand of God. And it's, it's unthinkable that the prayers of Jesus would not be answered. So... so the, the mediation, the ongoing mediation, the prayers of our Lord Jesus Christ on behalf of his own ensures and guarantees the perseverance of the saints. And then, uh, fourthly, uh, the ministry of the Holy Spirit, that we are indwelt by the personal representative agent of the Lord Jesus. That, that we are in Christ and, and that, that, that in Christ is, is by virtue of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and the ministry of the Holy Spirit uh, encouraging, uh, equipping, filling, uh, motivating, engaging uh, to ensure uh, that, that that which Jesus has accomplished will actually be a, applied in all of its fullness. <coughs> now that's a very quick sort of tour of, uh, of a, 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 a theological uh, kind of, kind of uh, uh, assessment of the doctrine of, of perseverance. However, uh, I want to slow down now because 
there are some obvious problems and difficulties and pastoral considerations here that we need to think about. And uh, I've, I've sort of uh, put them into various categories, uh, beginning with uh, warnings about apostasy. If, if it is true that the elect will persevere to the end, why does the New Testament engage in warnings about apostasy? Are these warnings with, without, without real meaning? Are they just hypothetical warnings, but they're not, they're warnings about someone else, but they're not warnings to me personally? Uh, let's look at some of them. Uh, let's look at the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24. And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Now, we won't go into all the... uh, Niceties and, and complexities of the Olivet Discourse. Uh, here we're, we're, we're coming to it in Mark 13 on Sunday mornings uh, in the springtime. So we'll have fun looking at, uh, at uh, what Jesus has to say in, on the Olivet Discourse. But, but clearly Jesus is giving a warning here. Whether that warning is about something that, that's imminent, uh, say within the lifetime of the apostles, or whether Jesus is giving a warning here about something that is going to be true for the entire uh, period between the first and second uh, coming, and I, I rather think that it's the latter rather than the former. But, but in any case, Jesus is warning here of trouble, of false prophets, of those who would lead you astray, and, and a spirit of lawlessness where, he says, the love of many will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. It, it kind of hints at the fact that if you don't endure to the end, you will not be saved. Right? There's a warning here. Is this warning just a hypothetical, just to kind of wake you up in the morning? Or is there some teeth to this? Is there some reality to this? That, that we need to make sure that we are, in fact, persevering on a day-to-day, moment-by-moment basis, because only those who persevere to the end will be saved. Well, isn't it true? Once saved, always saved. I mean, isn't that true? Well, it depends what you mean by once saved. It's it's not true that all who say that they are saved will persevere to the end. So so the statement, once saved, always saved, actually it's not a very helpful statement. It's not a statement that I would ever use, but, but... because it all depends on what you mean by once saved. Truly saved, yes. Truly regenerate, yes. Truly in union with Christ, yes. Truly adopted, truly justified. But simply saying the, the statement, once saved, you know, I was saved. I was saved in 
I mean, I can say it. I was saved on December the 28th in 1971. But if that's the basis, the sole basis of my assurance of my salvation, that's a, that's a very dangerous thing because Jesus is saying here, only, only the one who perseveres to the end will be saved. How do I know that what I experienced in 1971... Right, 30, whatever that is, years ago. How do I, how do I know for, for, for sure 40 years ago? <laughs> I was only a math major. Uh, over 40 years ago. Uh, how, how do I know that what I experienced then was the genuine thing? How do I know that? Uh, let's look at another text. Now, these things happen to them as an example. Uh, this is 1 Corinthians 10. You know, Paul is uh, using the, uh, the uh, Exodus. Uh, and uh, uh, these things happen to them as an example. But they were written down for our instruction. On whom the end of the ages has come. Wonderful expression. Uh, we are those upon whom the end of the ages has come. Uh, the last days have dawned upon us. The end of the ages has come. We are, we are, we are those uh, who are living in the time of the fulfillment of uh, the prophecies of the Old Testament. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Well, you know, there's a sense in which you can take the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints and you can say, well, you know, I'm saved, once saved, always saved, so I've got nothing to worry about. You know, I may sin, I may fall, I may fall short, I may go through a period of dryness and so on, but I've got nothing to worry about because, because once saved, always saved. And, and, and here's Paul saying, let the one who thinks that he stands take heed, lest he fall. Fall in what sense? Fall just in a, in a minor way and scrape your knee or does he mean fall, fall away from grace is that what he means this is a warning this is a warning passage a warning about apostasy uh, Hebrews 2 therefore we must pay closer attention to what we have heard lest we drift away uh, the verb is uh, the verb that would be used of a, a boat that was moored uh, to to the dock and, and that you know that that knot wasn't uh, the right knot and and uh, uh, in uh, but in the squall in the wind that knot comes loose and, and suddenly the boat is drifting out uh, into the sea uh, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard lest we drift away from it. Take care, brothers, in chapter 3. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you be, may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Th those are passages of warning. And the question that we have to ask ourselves in light of the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. Are those warnings real warnings, genuine warnings, or are they just hypothetical warnings? And, and I would put it to you that those are real warnings. They're about as real as you can get. Um, a second category, before we, before we uh, try and uh, bring some answers here, a second ca category, um, statements which argue conditionality. 
and, and some Christians get, get kind of hyper about the whole use of the word condition because we're, we're, we're prone now to use the word unconditional in ways that actually, frankly, are not always helpful. Um, because this, the, the, the New Testament contains statements that are clearly conditional statements. Um, let's look at one in Colossians 1. Uh, we were looking at it a few weeks ago uh, with Dr. Davis. He is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If, there's the condition, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. I think about that. These things are true. He has, he has reconciled you by his death in order that he may present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. But then comes this conditional statement, if, if indeed you continue in the faith, meaning if there's an if clause, what does that mean? It's a condition. This, this has to be true. Second uh, Timothy uh, 2.12, if we endure... We will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. Those are conditional statements. If if we endure, we will also reign with him. Now, is the New Testament here turning justification by faith alone on its head? No, it's not. What it's doing is saying that those who are truly justified will demonstrate that justification by deeds of godliness and righteousness. By their deeds you shall know them. If we say we're justified by faith and there are no works, that justification is void. Uh, Hebrews 3.14, For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Now, those texts, right, there are texts in the Bible that, that, that I preached on one recently in Romans, uh, in Romans uh, 3 and 4, uh, that we are justified apart from the works of the law. Right, so that, there's a text that says our justification is apart from the works of the law. And the works of the law have no consideration whatsoever in our justification. Jesus has obeyed in our room instead. But does that mean that there are no works for us to do? And clearly these texts are addressing something else. These texts are addressing the consequence of true justification. Everyone who is truly justified will demonstrate that justification by good works. We're justified by faith apart from works, but that, that faith through which we are justified is never alone. It is always accompanied by works, uh, the Westminster Confession says. So you have, 
you have warnings about apostasy, and then you have texts that are in the form of conditional statements, statements that argue conditionality. Then, uh, thirdly, um, there are actual cases of apostasy. But there's a warning, there's a condition statement, but then, kind of ratcheting this up a little now, there are actual cases of apostasy. Uh, the most notorious is Hebrews 6, uh, 4 through 6. There's a similar passage in Hebrews 10. Uh, it is impossible, for it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. That's a very difficult passage. It's one of the most difficult passages in the New Testament. It's certainly one of the most difficult passages in Hebrews, but it's not difficult to understand. I mean, conceptually, this isn't a difficult passage. There are, there are way more difficult passage, passages conceptually in the New Testament than this one. What makes this difficult is that it seems to go against what we believe about the nature of our salvation, namely, that we tend to think once saved, always saved. Aren't we, after all, here this evening talking about the perseverance of the saints, that those, that the elect will be glorified? That those whom he, prede- those whom he foreknew, he also predestines, and those whom he predestines, he calls, and those whom he calls, he justifies, and those whom he justifies, he glorifies. But there are, there are warnings about apostasy, there are conditional statements in the New Testament, and then there are actual cases of apostasy. There are those who fall away. Um, my wife and I have a have a uh, have someone we know, and uh, I, I don't want to get too specific, but who uh, who was uh, a, a vibrant, vibrant Christian. Uh, I still remember um, this this person's prayers. I still remember this person's personal evangelism. Uh, there are many aspects of my, uh, of my life as a Christian that were shaped and contoured by this particular individual that I'm talking about. And yet this person completely and utterly fell away from Christianity, from the gospel. Uh, Followed for a season with enormous intensity. Perhaps as much intensity as I've witnessed in in 40 years of being a Christian. But fell away. 
Uh, Romans 14:15, where Paul speaks of the actions of one believer destroying a brother for whom Christ has died. Very, very difficult text. Or Demas in 2 Timothy 2.18. Demas has deserted me having loved this present evil world. Now, Paul may be saying about Demas, you know, that he's gone home to, to be with his mother like, like John Mark left Paul uh, on the Isle of uh, Cyprus after the first missionary journey. I mean, John Mark just went home. And Paul may be saying about Demas that he has forsaken me in the sense that he's forsaken my ministry. I I tend to think in the context of the passage that Paul is saying something much more than that. He's actually speaking of Demas' apostasy. Or Hymenaeus and Philetus who destroyed the faith of some. That it's possible to destroy someone's faith. Now, these, these, these problem passages, warnings of apostasy, conditional statements, actual statements of apostasy, and especially the Hebrew 6 uh, passage. You know, I was, uh, I was reading again recently uh, in uh, uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones' uh, uh, very famous book on preaching, Preaching and Preachers, uh, probably the best book on preaching that was ever written. Um, how he, he makes this astonishing co- comment, uh, astonishing from the perspective of 2014 for sure, that the text that troubled Christians the most in his ministry, this was his experience of his ministry, that the text that troubled Christians the most was Hebrews 6 4 through 6. That he found again and again as a gospel minister that there were Christians who had come to him troubled by this verse. Now, I have to say that in you know, 15, 20 years, I've, 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 I've rarely encountered somebody who's been troubled by Hebrews 6, 4 to 6. Because I think we, I, I don't know, maybe we just ignore it. Maybe we just... We push it aside and we say, well, this is true about somebody, but it's not true about me because I'm once saved, always saved. Because I'm a Christian. Because I'm justified. Because I'm in union with Christ. Because my sins are forgiven. These problems are actually less problematic than they appear to be. Uh, I've, I've put in a statement here from the Canons of Dort. Uh, you know, you don't get more reformed than the Canons of Dort. Uh, that's, that's, that's the summit of the mountain, uh, the Canons of Dort uh, in 1618, 19. Uh, By reason of these remains of indwelling sin and the temptations of sin and of the world, those who are converted could not persevere in a state of grace if left to their own strength. But God is faithful, who having conferred grace, mercifully confirms and powerfully preserves them therein even to the end. Now, I want you to think about that statement, because on the one side, that statement is saying, 
it's giving you a classic statement of the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. But on on another level, that statement is saying, if left to yourselves, not not only would there be the threat of falling away, but there actually would be the guarantee of it. That apart from sovereign grace, apart from the continual initiative of God in our lives, not only would there be the possibility of falling away, there would be the guarantee of it. We would fall away. Now the question uh, that, that arises from, from all of this is, um, How do you know? How do you know that you are one for whom Jesus has died and shed his blood and and gained redemption and therefore guarantees that you will make it all the way to glory? How do you know that? The statement of perseverance is made, and, and uh, in, in, look at the language used in chapter in, uh, number 6-2 on page 5, 6-2. I talk about phenomenological language. The New Testament speaks of Christians phenomenologically. Let me, let me explain what I mean. The New Testament speaks of Christians the same way that you and I speak of Christians. Are there Christians who fall away? Yes, of course there are. There isn't anyone in this room who's going to deny that. Are there people that you know of as Christians? You, you, you think, you thought of them as Christians. They thought of themselves as Christians, but they fell away. They, they, they committed apostasy. Do we know anybody like that? Yes, of course. Yes, sadly I do. I could trot out a dozen names to you tonight of dear and close friends of mine who once professed to be Christians but have committed apostasy. They're no longer following the Lord. They, are, they, have, they have forsaken the Lord. They are in the, in the wilderness. When Paul says, Demas hath forsaken me, having loved this present evil world, Paul wasn't in any way, he, he wasn't in a position to say, you know, Demas was never one of the elect. So therefore I can say of Demas, he has fallen away. No, when the New Testament talks about Christians, it it talks about Christians according to that which it sees, according to the phenomenon. And, And what is the phenomenon? The phenomenon is that Paul and Peter and John and others are writing letters here to people who call themselves Christians. Now, are they elect? Only the Lord knows. So there are those who are Christians, Christians in inverted commas, if you like, but they are Christians according to the language of the phenomena who fall away. Now, do the elect fall away? No, they don't. 
What's the guarantee we call ourselves Christians tonight? What's the guarantee? What guarantee do we have that we shall not fall away? That guarantee is not in yourself. It's not in your experience. It's not in your membership of First Presbyterian Church. It's not in the quality of your prayers. That guarantee lies only in Christ. Only to the extent that you are looking to Christ. Day by day, minute by minute, second by second. Is there that guarantee of final perseverance and eventual glorification? That's why the New Testament has this emphasis on the need to persevere. This is, this is a responsibility that falls upon us. That the gospel doesn't make us passive. But there, are, there are expressions of the gospel out there that seem to suggest that, that somehow or other we become passive. That we have absolutely nothing to do now. Except as it were rest in the gospel but actually the emphasis of the New Testament is saying to you that having experienced that justification we need to persevere to the end day by day moment by moment because only he who endures to the end shall be saved uh, does, that, um, does that make the Christian life m- more difficult? Yes. But who said that the Christian life wasn't meant to be difficult? We're to take up a cross and deny ourselves and, and, and follow him. Uh, and we do that on a, on a daily basis. And these warnings and these conditional clauses here and these examples of apostasy are, are warnings. These things, 1 Corinthians 10, these things happened by way of example. Let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. There's a difference between perseverance and presumption. And there's a difference between, between preservation and presumption. And, and these passages of Scripture exhort the people of God to constant, um, the need to constantly persevere, persevere in Christ. Uh, now, I think, uh, and it, we, we don't have time tonight, but I think that that's essentially what the book of Hebrews is all about. Uh, a, an exhortation, a, a massive exhortation uh, to persevere. Well, I'm sure that raises uh, a whole lot of question. questions. Yes? Is it better to be troubled by Hebrews Six four through six, or not troubled by Hebrews six four through six, or both. 
let me ask the question so that uh, those listening to the recording can hear it. Uh, Booty is asking, is it better to be troubled by Hebrews 6, 4 through 6, or not troubled by it, or both? Uh, you know, I cannot, I cannot but think that the reason why we have Hebrews 6, 4 to 6 is in one sense to trouble us if we are living at ease with ongoing sin. If, if we are not engaged in the daily habit of mortifying sin, if we are not engaged in the daily habit of running to Jesus and to him alone, we ought to be troubled. Our assurance is not in our... Um, you know, we should never get assurance in sin. We should never get assurance in, in um, the passivity of our lives. We should never get assurance from, uh, from um, our backsliding or, or our rebellion against God. Those, those are meant to make us... Well, they're meant to make us afraid. Um, the, the warning is there for a reason. But what's, what's the answer to Hebrews 6? How can I make sure that I don't commit apostasy? And the answer to that is you constantly go to Jesus. Jesus is, is the answer here. But it's not, it's, not in, it's not in passivity and it's not in uh, uh, letting go and letting God. It's not in... Uh, a, a notion of once saved, always saved. Because what does once saved mean? Once truly saved, always saved. <coughs> Genuinely saved, always saved. But what's to say that what I experienced wasn't true or wasn't genuine? And the only way that I can be sure of that is that I, I, I constantly run to Jesus with my sins and seek his forgiveness. Um, I think that's why the, the Lord's Prayer uh, says on a daily basis, forgive us our sins. Good question. Well, let's pray together. Father, we thank you as we, uh, as we think through these uh, difficult issues. We thank you that there is an assurance here. The assurance is not in ourselves it's not in our ability. The assurance is always in Christ and in the gospel. Uh, but we pray that we might heed these warnings, uh, that he that perseveres to the end shall be saved, and that we might run with perseverance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Keep us from presumption and from loving our sins and help us to flee moment by moment to the Lord Jesus in whom alone there is assurance. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.